Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... From 2014 to 2017, Duval County, Florida, which includes the city of Jacksonville, saw a 28% decrease in the divorce rate. Why? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by J.P. DeGantz of Communio. J.P., thank you for joining us. Hey, Andrew, great to be here with you. And today, J.P. is here to explain why the divorce rate doesn't have to stay at the same level. And J.P., can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Communio's work? Yeah, I'm the founder and, and president of Communio. I, in my prior life, worked as the executive vice president of a place called the Philanthropy Roundtable. I used to work in the public policy sphere. In doing that work for about 10 years, I came to Washington, D.C. to try to save uh, the country like a lot of idealistic young people and realized that politics is a crude instrument to do that. And God providentially hit me on the head a few times and redirected me to really focus on strengthening the family, strengthening marriage. Those are the institutions that the future and the health of the country and the world depend on, as our Holy Father, John Paul II, had noted in many, in many different ways. I was going to ask, uh, did it work when you went to D.C.? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we've we got everything cinched up. And so I, once I fixed the political world, I just moved over uh, yeah. right into the, the family. No, all kidding aside, I, I learned a bunch. It was a set of experiences that, and I write about this in my uh, my book, Endgame, The Church's Strategic Move to Save Faith and Family in America. There was just a number of experiences that I learned that were really helpful, you know, being disciplined, uh, husbanding resources well, mm -hmm. working with an end in mind, creating a strategy, finding what works, finding what doesn't work, stopping what doesn't work. All that was incredibly helpful in my work with Communio and our work in our experiment in Jacksonville, Florida, which sought to measurably strengthen marriages and families and inspire really much of what we did in bringing uh, into the ministry space. And we are definitely going to have a link to uh, that book, Endgame, in our show notes because it does contain a lot of what we are going to talk about here. But let's start off with the Jacksonville experiment. So the county that includes Jacksonville, Duval County, uh, saw a 28% decrease in the divorce rate from 2014 to 2017, which was compared with surrounding counties and was found exceptional. So JP, yeah. in a nutshell, why did that happen? Yeah. So, okay. So it's, it's going back in 2013 and 14, I'm going to take you a little bit into the origin story because I think it might be of interest. We were trying to figure out what could be done on a citywide scale. I was working at the Philanthropy Roundtable as the executive vice president began talking with faith-filled business people and uh, philanthropists about the idea of trying to bring the very best practices from other fields and marrying it, I guess, pun intended here with marriage ministry. And we looked at three different cities. Jacksonville was one of them, Dayton, Ohio, and, and Phoenix, Arizona. We called each city a, a cultural enterprise zone. We did very different approaches in, in, in different cities, trying to figure out what would work. We had an assumption that life changes uh, most effectively through personal relationships. We had another assumption that there was no more life-changing relationship than the one with Jesus Christ. And so with those assumptions, we got to work really trying to supercharge the growth of transformative personal relationships in, in each city. In Jacksonville, we ended up working with an exact total of 93 different churches spread out throughout Duval County. We created 
and purchased resources, what we call like in-kind resources that churches were able to uh, benefit from. Those were micro-targeting resources, outreach and advertising resources, uh, market research and message research uh, that frequently exist in, say, uh, the commercial sector or in the political sector, but don't typically come into the, the church sector. Then we brought in the very best content partners that we could find, folks who really were knowledgeable in marriage and relationship education. Uh, we worked with a, a point organization on implementation in the county, was our, our good friends at Live a Life Ministries. Uh, I want to uh, salute Dennis Stoika and Richard Albertson, who are great friends of mine, and helped us on design and implementation. And really, first, it's the recruitment of churches in the county to implement relationship education. Once those churches were recruited and programming begun, we did outreach around each of those churches, inviting them into fun and engaging events, frequently date night activities, uh, something to kind of warm up the audience, so to speak. Uh, the first time someone engages with you is unlikely that they're gonna just show up for an eight hour class right. or a 16 hour class. But over the course of three years, we moved, Andrew, 58,912 through at least four hours or longer of relationship education. We set that bar as a minimum. Almost all of that 58,000 was actually eight hours or longer. We just set the minimum to count uh, skills-based instruction at four. Was that 58,000 people or 58,000 couples? It was 58,912 completed courses. Gotcha. So that's individuals who've completed courses. We couldn't determine because of the registration systems of different churches and organizations, we assume some of those were people going to a, a course or an activity in one place, and some small number uh, probably uh, replicated that somewhere else. Hmm. But for the most part, it's all individuals who completed. Gotcha. And, and it was skewed towards the 25 to 40-year-old to demographic, right? When you look at the number of reductions in absolute numbers of, of divorces throughout Duval County, we were able to attribute half of the decline to marriage intensives that we helped end up getting promoted through the county, where people ahead of the marriage intensive said they were going to get a divorce. And then at the end of the intensive said they were recommitted to their marriage and stayed married. So it was a big lift. It was, you know, applying a lot of the best practices that already exist in the marriage sphere and then combining it with best practices outside of that sector, right? With really good marketing, outreach, messaging. It really was a a significant, uh, you saw, saw a significant, we had uh, scholars from Florida State University and the University of Virginia do an independent evaluation of that work. Brad Wilcox from, from UVA, who ended up writing the forward for the book, he said that uh, there was, in his, in his study, concluded there was no other demographic explanation for the decline in divorce in the county other than the intervention that we led there. So we, we took the core learnings from that. You know, everything we did there was to try to find ways to prove and then scale. And so we took the core findings and uh, turned it into our replicable model at Communia, where we work and directly serve individual churches, parishes to apply the best practices of what we did in Jacksonville, but at the individual church level in order to both grow the church and affect change on marriage health. And you worked... I think then in Jacksonville, but also nowadays, you work both with Catholic parishes and other Christian communities as well. So there's some flexibility in your model as to what content they use in their programs, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. Our consultative model, we call the data-informed, 
full circle relationship ministry, all right? So by data informed, we mean helping the pastor and the leadership team diagnose what's going on at the individual church and in the surrounding community around the church, okay? Then we un unpack that data with the church's leadership to set goals of where they want to get to. Usually it's a, a growth goal to grow the, the church and then grow the health of the relationships in and around the church. Those are the two areas that we help them set goals in. And then we work with them to create a strategy, typically a two-year strategy to achieve those goals. Now, uh, that then leads to the way it looks in practice is what we call our ministry engagement ladder. It's our four-step process for engagement with the community. The bottom rung of that is invitation. So doing the very best types of targeted invitations through everything from Facebook to Instagram, but email prospecting, person-to-person -person texting, direct mail, and mm. even door-to-door -door outreach with a mobile lock walking application if volunteers want to do that. And then that leads to outreach events, which are fun and engaging, 90% fun, 10% education. And then we want to draw them back to something that we call an ongoing engagement, which is 70% fun, 30% education. And then you move them to what we call the growth journey, which is the skills-based program, right? And that this is, we always say, point out to pastors, we don't author any uh, growth journey programs. We actually curate programs from different providers, evangelical, Catholic. Uh, we've got a, a catalog with about 80 different uh, unique pieces of, of content. And then we help father figure out what types of programs. Like for instance, we love Witness to Love as a, for instance, Catholic content provider. And so we will frequently recommend their content as part of our framework. Okay. And so as a consequence, we're not competitive with content providers. We try to actually help grow the number of churches using that and then having that content be catalytic, right? How do we get beyond the same daily communicants or the same, you know, small number of people who come to any program. Right. And, and this is what we did in Jacksonville, right? It was going beyond the people who are already inherently self-motivated to go get help for their relationship and get out into the community and into the, into the parish, right? Because most parishes, let's face it, people showing up are treating it parishes sort of a sacramental way station. Frequently at best, they're you know, they're coming for their, as, as I have a brother who calls it, their supernatural rocket fuel each week, and they're not really doing a lot of uh, other engagement in the parish. So how do we uh, draw folks in? And, and there's a great need in each parish. When we run our surveys, about one in four Catholics self-report struggling right now in their marriage. And of those, women are 35% more likely to self-report struggling in their marriage than men. So this is a great need in every parish, and the need is even greater in those outside of the active life of the parish in the, in the surrounding community. So it's a great way to provide value to both the parish community and those outside of it in order to grow the parish and help folks encounter Jesus Christ. Okay, one question about the outreach phase, because when I was studying catechesis a few years ago, I always thought that the ideal window to reach people who might not otherwise have strong religious practice was young adulthood before they got married because they're out of school, they're not settled with a family yet, they're more open to different major changes in life. But this sounds like it's kind of different than that and there's yeah. more of an opportunity, if done correctly, to reach people who are already married and who have kids. That's right. You ultimately, in the book, I give an analogy of a cruciform-shaped church. Okay, in a cruciform-shaped church, 
the vertical nave is the best way to enter the church, right? It's architecturally designed that way. It raises the mind and, and heart uh, to the things of God. That is in the analogy of the Jesus door. You know, we can all agree that's the best door to enter a church. But in today's post-Christian world, most people aren't interested in entering that door. And if they do enter that door, they just behave like gawking tourists. They take pictures and they're unaffected by the encounter, right? And so it's that horizontal door in our analogy is sort of the relationship door, right? And that's the door through which if you can build that authentic relationship and feed into a need, they'll be interested in walking in the side door. And then through that side door, you can actually bring them into an encounter with Jesus, right? Now, we talk about, I frequently, when I talk with churches, our team does, there's actually life events that frequently affect the decision to come back to faith or encounter faith, you know, sometimes called hatch, match, and dispatch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, birth, marriage, death. Uh, those are events where people have some major change, right? And so the way community architects itself is frequently around that hatch and match phase. And we use the terminology of full circle because, look, the reality is, is the number of people getting married every day or every year is in free fall. The most recent data is that there are 31% fewer people getting married now than in the year 2000. There are 61% fewer people getting married now than in the year 1970. Most recent census data shows that in the year 1970, there were 40% of all households were married households with kids. Today, that number is 17.8%. I want everyone listening to this podcast to think about that. Almost all Catholic marriage work is done around marriage preparation. And if there's anything around marriage in crisis, you know, retrovi or something of that nature, very little else is, is happening outside of that. If we don't get upstream and affect the discernment process of forming and maintaining healthy relationships that lead to marriage, the future of the church is bleak. That's what the data shows. And so we encourage churches to think in terms of, of single young adults, help them form. There's a real hunger. There's what the culture tells us about the way that our relationships should look. Then there's what the gospel tells us the way our relationships should look. And it just so happens that the social sciences are increasingly validating the gospel and not <laughs> validating the culture. And so there's a great opportunity to use uh, and really marry the best of what we're learning in the social sciences, right? With an authentic anthropology and theology of relationship. That's what we're encouraging parishes to do. Yes, let's support those who are married and that's a, a deep need, but we also need to develop a strategy and game plan who are not married and help them form good relationships. And those who can avail themselves of the sacrament of marriage, how do we support them? Does the likelihood of young people nowadays getting married have a relationship to whether or not their parents stayed married? Yes, absolutely. And I go into some of this data in the book. There's a lot of data that shows virtue is contagious, but so is vice. And we see this in family structure and family of origin issues, right? So if, if someone comes from a home where there's not a healthy marriage, okay, whether that be they never married, the parents never married, or uh, they divorced, that child in survey research does not prioritize getting married in his or her own life mm -hmm. and is the most likely to be interested in cohabitation out of fear, okay? Frequently, cohabitation is uh, emotionally chosen because of a fear that 
marriage is too risky. This is a way to test and try something uh, before you end up in a situation that the perception is you can't get out of it, right? And so we, when we talk with pastors and, and folks who work in ministry, we talk to them about this huge challenge that you know, oh, you're talking about the lifestyle habits of the world around cohabitation. As anybody listening to this knows that those in the church look very similar to lifestyle habits of the world. And it's, I think, one of the big challenges is as a church, we have abdicated the practical instruction of this, right? I think in many ways, the church pastorally behaves as if it's still 1960, meaning we're going to assume that people are going to present themselves for marriage, and we're going to assume that they're kind of, you know, well-ordered toward marriage. And so we're going to go through our, you know, the, the basic checkboxing compliance of getting them formed. And then after they get married, we'll just, you know, let them go and, and see what happens. And so it should be no surprise to us that as a consequence, marriages in the church oftentimes, while better off, the data says the marriages in the culture around us are still trending toward that of the world. Yeah, and we we actually just talked to uh, Richard Budd about the marriage catechumenate and sort of remedying that sort of marriage prep, you know, kind of outlook in sacramental prep. So if uh, you listening at home missed that episode, check out episode 81 on the marriage catechumenate because we go into a lot more depth there talking about what it means to prepare for marriage in the church in 2022. And we'll be continuing with part two of our interview with J.P. DeGantz of Communio, which, by the way, is not to be confused with the academic journal of the same name, in our next episode, which in turn continues our ongoing mini-series coinciding with National Marriage Week on February 7th to the 14th, which you can find a link about in the episode notes as well. So be sure to look for part two of our interview with JP in a couple weeks and some more episodes on marriage to come after that. And we are back with Kara Bach, who is returning to us after having her first daughter. Congrats and welcome back, Kara. Thank you. So yes, by, by way of explanation, if you hear any cries in the background, there's, there is a person. Yeah, she's our new co-host. <laughs> Very opinionated. She definitely enjoyed watching <laughs> this movie. <laughs> so we are here to discuss a West Side Story, really both versions. Kara, now I think you've only seen the original classic 1961 movie of West Side Story. Okay. I have seen that. And I've also seen the new one, which came out late in 2021, directed by Steven Spielberg, which honestly, you guys, is maybe better than the original. It's really good. It's so well done. And it has real Puerto Ricans in most of the parts (laughs) that call for it. I'll admit, this was the first time I've actually seen West Side Story was recently, which is sort of surprising because I watched a lot of musicals growing up. But it was sort of jarring in the first opening scene. I was like, does this guy have, like, brown makeup on? Yeah. It's bad. The actor in the original who plays the leader of the Sharks is supposed to be Puerto Rican, and he's Greek in real life. And it looks like they just put mud on his face or something. I read an interview with Rita Moreno, and apparently they put darker makeup on her. And she is Puerto Rican. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's like, I don't need this. Yeah. But she also shows up in the new one. She plays a different character in the new movie. She is like the shopkeeper role. 
in the new movie, mm. except not with ethnicity altering makeup, and she's much more light skinned. Yeah. So, and she's great in both. I heard that was her objection. She's like, you know, Puerto Ricans are like many different shades. Right. For those who don't know, West Side Story is a musical mid century retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but instead of Montagues and Capulets, you have a gang of mostly white ruffians called the Jets and a gang of Puerto Rican youths called the Sharks. And the Sharks are newer in town and less welcome. They're the outsiders. And they are drawn into a gang war with the Jets who are trying to defend their toif, et cetera, et cetera. In the original movie, a lot of elaborate ballet-inspired dance fights ensue. And in the new movie, there's a little bit of that, like enough to honor the original, but not so much that it strains your suspension of disbelief. Comma, as in, as in the old movie, when the opening scene, you're like, really, these guys are going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Which you don't really question as much here. The leader of the, the sharks, Barnardo, in both versions is a boxer, but you actually believe it. He has the, the build and the physicality of a boxer in the new movie. And also the, the conflict is a little more heightened here too, because they emphasize more the development and gentrification plot point here than in the old one. Development, like changing neighborhoods in New York and people, you know, having to move out of their homes for new construction is a thing in the old one. But in this one, it's much more over the buildings that they're kind of in and among kind of look like rubble some of the time as does the construction around them. And very tellingly, the movie opens with a shot of what the construction is. And it's Lincoln Center in New York, which in real life is where the new movie premiered. Oh. So the people who are going to see the movie are sitting in the theater built on top of the supposed neighborhood of the two groups that are being driven out of it. Interesting. It's funny you say that because I, I didn't pick up on it in the original that like, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's the Upper West Side. Like I lived in New York for 10 years, so it felt like evocative of the Upper West Side, but it didn't feel specific in its location. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting choice to make it so specific in like where it is and what's, what's going on. Yeah. And I would say this movie has more of a desire for that kind of specificity. Uh, they filmed a lot of it in Harlem and other parts of New York, even though a lot of the parts of New York that this takes place in don't exist that way anymore. Mm. But uh, yeah, so within that uh, that gang dispute, on one side, a friend of the leader of the Jets, uh, Tony, falls in love with Maria, the sister of the leader of the Sharks. And those are your Romeo and Juliet equivalents. So Tony and Maria meet, fall in love in this kind of a similar way that Romeo and Juliet do. Um, instead of a balcony scene, there's a fire escape scene, which is very well done in both movies. And a few episodes back, when we were in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, we were talking about sentimentality and stories where the main characters fall in love at first sight before they know each other's last names or anything like that. And I think this is one of the main culprits, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, well, I will say it's interesting. I remember in high school having, you know, everybody studies Romeo and Juliet, and I like was never into the, you know, extremely sentimental stories, so I was not into Romeo and Juliet. But what's interesting is that I don't think that my understanding is that Shakespeare did not intend this to be a great romance. Like that's a more modern take as if the idea that you see this person across the room and decide that you're going to side with them in a fight to the death over your family as like a <laughs> pro in life. Like, okay, this is wild. Like that's wild, you guys. 
<laughs> I feel like this movie does a good job of sort of showing that off. And if anything, I mean, I mentioned this to you earlier, Andrew, that to me, I think the movie kind of interestingly feels like Bernardo and Anita, or at least the original movie, sort of feels more like Bernardo and Anita are the protagonists. Like, I don't really feel like Maria and Tony, I mean, maybe it's just the acting or the way that the storyline is put together. They almost feel like secondary characters, even though they're supposed to be Romeo and Juliet. And appropriately, the Bernardo and Anita characters are the ones who actually received Oscars for Best Supporting Actor and Actress, <laughs> which felt appropriate because they seem to be carrying more of the emotional weight of the story. And they're more realistic because they're not, oh my gosh, I saw this guy across the room and now I'm forsaking my entire family for you dude i've known for five minutes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's actually a difference between this and romeo and juliet is that the the prominence of the secondary quote-unquote characters is much greater in west side story there's not really an equivalent to bernardo and anita in romeo and juliet the the parts that they play are sort of divvied up among more different characters and you don't follow them as much whereas these two have like a real relationship they're trying to make it in this new country they immigrated to yeah it's it's like it's they're much more poignant yeah and so that informs their conflict more yeah that's a good point i was never really clear it's just like worry our families are feuding like okay right because like in the old country these feuds go back you know a millennium So it doesn't matter how it started. It just matters that that's the way it is. Yeah. I mean, that's part of Romeo and Juliet's character, right? They're supposed to be kind of unrealistic because they're supposed to show how a world full of hostility makes it very hard to fall in love, Mm. right? Across whatever lines you want to draw, culture, class, race. We probably have to address the anybody's character. Do you remember the, the jet who wants to be a jet, but they won't let her? Yeah. Because she's a goyle. And no Goyles allowed in the Jets. That character exists in both and is often looked at as like one of the first pro-transgender characters. You know, I'm using transgender in quotes because that, you know, we can't get into gender ideology in this episode. The interviews you did on it were really good. Although if you want to learn more about gender theory and our take on it, check out episodes 65 and 66. We did a great two-part interview with uh, Abigail Favale. So that's definitely the place to go. But the reason I want to bring it up here is because there is this weird implication in how they relate to her and how she relates to them in both movies. It's not like in the old movie, it's kind of old and weird and they've, you know, they've modernized it. It's more or less the same, which is they won't let her in because she's a girl. And then she proves her worth and they admit her into the Jets by the end of it. And in at least in the new movie, they say something to the effect of good job, buddy boy, to her. Basically recognizing her as A, one of them, and B, a man. Which to me is crazy that you, in order to welcome somebody into your group, you have to recognize them as a man. Like legitimacy and gendered maleness are somehow tied together all of the strides that we've made for women in feminism have are basically obliterated it's like oh rather than you can be a woman and that can look many different ways instead it puts a hyper emphasis on external looks and also yeah like belonging to in groups as opposed to being yourself as perhaps god made you They haven't actually addressed the question of should women be included in this or that sector (laughs) of society. They've just said if women want to be included, they can be deemed men and therefore included. 
Okay, well, so outraging. <laughs> yeah. You could probably make the argument in this movie's defense that the Jets who are saying those words are maybe not exemplars <laughs> uh, of <laughs> the understanding of you know how society should function. So maybe it's supposed to be flawed, but I, the way I read it, the movie was sort of approving of this as such versus saying, no, the Jets are a dumb group. And there's no reason to exclude women from I it. I definitely think that that's true in the old version where it's like, these are just a bunch of kind of loser guys. I, I can't speak to the new one if it feels more like we have an ideology that we're supporting. Uh, I mean, it is a bunch of old white dudes who remade this movie. So I'm not like <laughs> too, too uh, yeah. thinking it's like all that deep. But Moving on to the main story of the movie. I think that desire that Maria and Tony have to be together for as not pragmatic as it is, there's something to that desire that I think comes out in the song One Hand, One Heart, which is kind of midway through the movie, which is a duet, Tony and Maria singing about how they want to get married. And I think it expresses something real that is more than just sentimentality, which is a desire for unity. Because what they want is not just to feel nice feelings about each other. They already have that. But it's not enough for them, because otherwise they just maintain the status quo. They have an aspiration for this kind of unity, and later on in the song, they don't just say one hand, one heart. Make of our lives one life. Kara, do you know anything about One New Life? <laughs> Two new lives. Uh, 2021, I got married and had a baby. Who was... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that song expresses the genuine fulfillment of the promise of sentimentality. Because I think, you know, when we talked about in Love and Responsibility, you know, JP2 sort of points to sentimentality as a sort of natural starting point. And not to be necessarily demonized, like, of course, we have these natural feelings of attraction towards the other sex. It's just that it has to be put in its right context. And I think you're right that this song is sort of the fulfillment of that context. I want to feel something for somebody, but I don't just want to feel it to have the feelings. I want to feel it because the consequences of those feelings should be a, a unitive life that we're going to live together. And I, I mean, I think even to the point about like sentimentality, you know, Maria says to Anita, what do you feel when you're with Bernardo? She's like, I don't feel anything when I'm with Chino. And, you know, I think that there's something to be said about that. I think, you know, a lot of times people can put too much emphasis on like spark, not to get into that debate, but, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> wanting to have people like that, that initial feeling. But there's something to be said about attraction and a natural inclination towards the other person that should be the first step towards leading you to a deeper knowledge and understanding of the person. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the context for sentimentality because the context of these songs in both movies is a little bit different than the rest of the movies. You know, this song is one of the least jazzy songs in the score. It's much more Mm -hmm. solemn. In the old movie, it takes place in the dress shop, but 
Tony and Maria are there. Maria puts on a veil and they're sort of pretending like they're getting married. And, you know, with a little bit of movie magic, the dress shop starts to look like a church. And in the new movie, it's more overt because they're not in a dress shop. Tony and Maria are going on a date out to the Cloisters, which is a museum in New York with a whole bunch of sacred art. Many parts of it look like a church, especially because they basically took a couple of chapels from Europe brick by brick and moved them to this museum and reconstructed them as is. It's actually like old, like pieces of old monasteries. So they're legitimately like places of former places of worship that have been reconstructed into a museum. Highly recommend if you if you ever go to New York. It's really cool. Very transporting. Like you feel like you're in a different you're on a different planet almost. Yeah. But uh, still, def not a valid wedding at all. Uh, (laughs) No witnesses. Yeah. Yeah, I did think that was that was kind of funny because in the original Romeo and Juliet, like, isn't it a Franciscan friar who's helping them out? Yeah. Well, I think we can probably leave it there. Kara, maybe uh, when Vivi's grown up, you can eventually watch the new one because it's really good. I really liked it a lot. I'm biased because I love Steven Spielberg, but. I saw some clips online, you know, like they did some behind the scenes, like promo scenes or whatever. And it looks yeah. like. It is a better sung, better produced, more realistic kind of portrayal of the original is sort of what it looks like. Although I will say there is a part of me that I love old school musical dancing, (laughs) including Russ Hamblin was in my personal favorite musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which don't come at me. It's a super, super sexist movie. I cannot recommend it as a modern person. All the wrong messages, but... Best dancing and great songs. So Russ Hamlin makes it makes a reprisal of like great dancing and gymnastics, but less good acting <laughs> in this one. So not a convincing gang leader. Yeah, exactly. So I'll be a little sad if there's less dancing, but you know, I can go watch the actual movie I like if I want that. <laughs> Although I'm curious, did it, did the movie do very well? No, it didn't. I feel like I heard a lot of hype about it, and then apparently has fallen into lauded by critics. Nobody went and saw it. Which is a real shame because I think it has mainstream appeal. It's just people didn't want to see it and Spider-Man came out not too long after. I think Vivi's telling us we can leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I was like, like, well, somebody knows when it's time to go. <laughs> she was a good sport, though. This worked out. This did work out. Yeah, thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help this podcast grow, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.